1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 34, these are God's words. Now Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, may the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, and doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You know, when you think about um, the journey that we've had through Corinthians for the last several months now, it makes a lot of sense that Paul would have us bring the plane down here and talking about the resurrection. You know, Paul starts by addressing, uh, he starts Corinthians by addressing issues of division and issues of spiritual immaturity and issues of carnal and fleshly conduct and issues of marriage and sexuality and issues of idolatry. And after he has, uh, after he went systematically through all of these different struggles of the church, he moved into the proper worship of the saints. And that's what we talked about around 1 Corinthians chapter 11. How should the saints worship? How to rightly worship Jesus? How to rightly exercise the gifts? How to properly understand the sacraments like the Lord's Supper? So Paul begins, the, begins uh, 1 Corinthians by identifying the struggles in our fallen humanity. Idolatry, lust, 
greed, division, hero worship. And then he provides us a roadmap, roadmap back to the humanity that has been given to us by God in the beginning, and that is the roadmap being worship. You see, idols dehumanize us, but worship of the one true God restores our humanity. In worship, we learn what it really means to be human as God has designed us to be. And when, and when is humanity fully and completely restored according to God's design? Resurrection. So in other words, he starts with talking about how we've been dehumanized. And he moves from dehumanization to, to how do we move or get on the road towards being humanized? Worship. And when, and when are we fully human, according to God's design, resurrection. That's when we become fully human, like we were Garden of Eden human. Does, does that make sense? Not, not like this human uh, humanity. This is fallen humanity, broken humanity. But where do we get back to God's design for humanity? At the resurrection. One scholar writes about all about this 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 path that Paul has us on. He says, if the road to true humanity is true worship, the end and goal of God's renewed humanity is, of course, resurrection. So given this truth about resurrection's role in restoring humanity, it has to be deeply concerning to Paul that the Corinthians are actually discounting the resurrection. In fact, they're saying that there is no resurrection at all, at least some are saying. Now, we don't necessarily know what they believe. There's a lot of speculation behind what they believe. Some people thought that maybe, maybe they believed in some form of kind of an out-of-body type of resurrection where, where, where there was an ethereal kind of ghost-like resurrection. And then other people thought that some maybe didn't believe in resurrection at all. We don't necessarily know. But what we do know is that at least some of them are apparently rejecting the possibility of a bodily and eternal resurrection. And in so doing, they are cutting off a very foundational pillar of the Christian faith. Now, hear me again. Christianity does not stop in the forgiveness of sin. It doesn't stop there, saints. Christ came down and enter into a fallen and broken world, not simply to forgive it, but to fully restore it and anybody in it who professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if that was and that is his intent, then death cannot be the end. Only full restoration is. So Paul first begins by highlighting the the, the, the direction in verses 1 through 11, which our brother Corey walked us through a few weeks ago. And then he turns to the significance of the resurrection, which we will now turn our attention to in verse 12. So I want to deal with three thoughts this morning as we work through this text. Number one, what happens if there's been no resurrection? What happens if there's been no resurrection? Number two, what has happened and will happen because there has been a resurrection? And then number three, what is happening in me? Because there's been a resurrection. So first, what happens if there's been no resurrection? Now, verses 13 through 20, Paul deals with a number of different things that, have, that, that are, 
or could happen, so to speak, if there's been no resurrection. He talks about the fact of the gospel being emptied of its power and on sinking sand. In fact, he says, listen, we're liars. If the resurrection is not true, then not only is the word that we've preached a lie, but we ourselves are liars, and we ourselves are misrepresenting God himself because we've told you that the resurrection is true, and now you're telling us that it's not. Now you're telling us there's no such thing as a resurrection. And so he says that, hey, we're liars, the gospel is a lie, your faith is futile, meaning that you have, your faith, what you are resting on, is on sinking sand now. It's of no use to you to have faith. You know, a very interesting thing that I, I read recently, um, dating back to 2017, says that um, there was a poll that was, that was, that was done during, uh, in 2017. They, I think they polled maybe a couple of thousand a couple of thousand professing Christians. And they found in that poll, obviously not scientific enough to make, make big assumptions on, so we're going we're gonna to hesitate on making too large of an assumption, but they found in the people that they interviewed that 25% of them professed to be Christians but did not believe in the resurrection. To, to be a Christian or profess yourself to be a Christian, and to not believe in the resurrection is, excuse me, a complete and total waste of time. An utter waste of time. Paul is saying that your faith, whatever faith that you have and profess, if it does not have the resurrection at its core, is an empty and void and useless kind of faith. It makes no sense to even hold to a faith in Christ that does not include the resurrection, according to Paul. But there's, there's a couple of other points that I want to fix, I, I really want to drill into, that Paul says, this is what happens if there is no resurrection. The first point is this, if there is no resurrection, we have no forgiveness, and we have no cleansing from our sin. Verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This is a very, very, very important outworking of the resurrection not being real. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that, talking about people that have been saved by Christ, he tells us that they were once dead in their trespasses dead in their sins, that they followed the course of the world, that they followed the prince of the power of the air, and that, and that they once were, were living in the passions of their flesh, they carried out the desires of their body and their mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, Paul says that there once was a time that before Jesus' birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and before you embraced him by faith as Lord and as Savior, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was once a time where you were bound by the sins of your former life and held hostage by your sins. 
There was once a time where you were held captive by the devil, and you were a slave to your carnal desire and your passions, and you were addicts to greed and to lust and to anger and to the self, uh, your own self-promotion or arrogance or whatever, whatever happened to be your thing. You were a slave to it. And as a result, and as a result, you were a child of wrath meaning that you were destined for the wrath of God because we were all pursuing a life absent of God and exchanging God's glory in pursuit of our own glory. And so our only destination was wrath, which is fully manifested in hell, because prior to Christ, we were actively choosing life without the one true God. But then something happened, Paul says, in that same chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, and he says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, listen, very important, made us alive together with Christ. What happened? God, who is abundant in his mercy, abundant in his grace, always willing to share his mercy and always willing to share his grace with sinners who have done nothing to earn it, made us alive. And how did he do it? He made us alive together with Jesus. And then he says this, after he says, after he says what we just read in chapter 2, he says this in verse 6 of that same chapter, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, the power at work in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the same power at work in the life transformation, the life transforming resurrection that you and I now enjoy as people who are trusting him by faith. The resurrection that made those who were dead to sin alive by the grace of God is only possible if the resurrection that brought Jesus back from the grave is real. Since the same power that raised Jesus from the grave is the power that is at work in raising us from our sin graves. Without the resurrection, you wouldn't have to remember what you were like. You wouldn't have to remember, you wouldn't have to recall being dead in your sin. Because basically what Paul is saying is that without the resurrection, you would still be that. You would still be dead. You would still be without hope. You would still be without God. That's the first point. Second point, if there's no resurrection, the dead are really and truly dead. In verse 18, he says this, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. At the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul is probably about 50 years old. And of, the, and of those 50 years he's lived, on, lived in this life, 20 of them he's lived as a, as a Christian, as a saved man walking with Jesus. He's most certainly, through these 20 years in the faith, seen his share of suffering and seen his share of death. 
So I'm sure as this letter is being written, he has in the back of his mind the many friends who have gone on before him. Those who were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, lost their lives for Jesus. Those who suffered in their bodies, whether it be for their faith or otherwise. Those who died in pain. And for Paul, the resurrection gives closure for all of them. In fact, Paul says it another way, another way in just a few verses down. So he says in verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But he talks about the significance of the resurrection to the dead in uh, chapter 15, verses 54 through 56. He says this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. In other words, Paul is saying the resurrection, because of the resurrection, we have victory over death. No resurrection, no victory. Without the resurrection, the brutality and the mercilessness of death will have the final say. Without the resurrection, many Christians throughout history have died senselessly because they have given their lives only to not have the resurrection to look forward to in the end. Living with that knowledge has the capacity to make life void of hope, has the capacity to make life hopeless if there is nothing left on the other side of this life, especially if you've given this life to Christ. However, through the resurrection, we have victory over our greatest and final enemy, death, and thus we are filled with deep and abiding hope. And Paul tells us this in, in 1 Thessalonians. You've probably heard this, this text before, but, but he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, saints of God, Christians, those who in, have entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ and trust him by faith, or, or, or embrace him by faith, we do not grieve as those who do not have hope. And why is that? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, the very next verse, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We believe that he died, but because we believe he died and rose again, we also know that he's going to bring everyone else that has fallen asleep behind him. Does that make sense? So we don't grieve as those who do not have hope. And the question is why? Because if we follow Jesus as they did, we will see them again. We will see them again one day in a, in a place where there will be no suffering and no sorrow and no corruption or no death, only life, only newness, only joy, only happiness. Yes. Now here's, why, here's something else I want you to notice about this. Notice also that Paul keeps giving us this phrase, falling asleep. Falling asleep. It signifies to us that the state of those who have gone on ahead of us 
is not their final state. The people that have went ahead, uh, went ahead of you, those that you love dearly that have trusted Jesus Christ with their lives, they may be in the ground right now, but that is not their final state. That's why Paul says in Thessalonians, and he says here in Corinthians, that they have simply fallen asleep. That alone should give you hope. You know, I've seen a number of absolutely gut-wrenching deaths in my life. People that I love dearly, dying without much rhyme or much reason. And if you live long enough in this world, saying to God, you're going to join me in seeing that. In fact, if you live long enough in this world, you will be one of those people. You don't have to live long enough. You're just going to be one. But one source of great hope I have is in the fact that for those who are in Jesus, the state that I last saw them in is not their final state. And I have seen some brutal final states. But that's not the final state. They have not perished. They are sleeping Verse 18 gives us this alternate reality, though, when it says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Without the resurrection of Christ, the death of those before us cannot be classified as restful. Without the resurrection of Christ, it is actually death. It's not falling asleep. It is perish, perishing. It is, it is death. It is over. It is finality. That was their final state. Whatever state that you saw them in, that was their final state. If there is no resurrection from the dead, that's Paul's point. And so when you think about that, this, should not, this is why we should not be surprised when the world turns so passionately towards politics or towards celebrity or towards success or towards wealth or towards their accomplishments or towards the accomplishments of their children and their family members. We shouldn't be surprised by that because what other choice do you have? What other choice do we have before Christ? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then I grieve as one who has no hope and I reach as one who has no hope and I live my life as one who has no hope and I put all of my hope in all of these other things because there is nothing left on the other side for me. In fact, it's when we lose sight of the resurrection ourselves that we turn passionately towards all these other things in an attempt to give this life hope and meaning beyond what is able, what is only able, beyond what is only able to be provided through Christ. It's when we get our eyes off of the resurrection and off of the resurrected Savior that we begin to put all of our stock in what? The same exact things. Wealth, celebrity, politics, the accomplishments of, 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 of my own or the accomplishments of my family. Because what other choice do I have when I take my eyes off the resurrection but to find hope in hopeless things? Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then, there means, then that means there is no resurrection from the dead. There is, no, there is no resting. There is only perishing. And that is hopeless. And then he says this also. If there's no resurrection from the dead, we are the most to be pitied. 
We are the most to be pitied. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let me ask you a question. How would your life change if the resurrection was not real? If there was a big, big breaking news story and you got home today that, that sent, you know, sent the internet blazing and stayed, on the, stay, stayed on, the, uh, on the wire for the next three weeks, Jesus' body has been discovered. And not only Jesus' body, but all of the apostles' uh, written testimonies that say, yeah, we made it all up. How would your life change? Would it be deeply disrupted? Would your rhythms be disrupted? Would your goals be disrupted? Would your hopes be dashed, your fears realized? Would your schedule be disrupted? Would your finances be disrupted? Would your ambition in life be disrupted? Would your, would your approach to family be disrupted? Because if you live your life in such a way that the discovery of Jesus' body would do very little to impact your life, then your Christianity is too comfortable. Your Christianity is too safe. And safe to the point, the scary point of possibly being inauthentic. Paul says, if I found out that the resurrection wasn't real, then I would be the most pitied of all people. I've given my whole life to this thing. I would be a fool to the world if I found out that the resurrection was not real. You see, a life in Christ today has benefit and has reward, you know, to live a good life in Jesus but it is nothing compared to what will come. And Paul realizes that, which is why he's speaking in these bold terms. Of every living person on the face of the earth, consider us the most pitiful of them all and the ones who, live, who would live with the most regret if we found out that the resurrection was not real. You see, every negative experience that Paul has suffered, every single one that he has suffered and encourages us to suffer along with him, he does so with his eyes fixed in large part on the resurrection. He has laid his life on the line for this faith and for this resurrection. So if there is no resurrection, then Paul says, I'm the most pitiful person on the face of the earth. Paul said, Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. In other words, he's saying, I process my present suffering through future glory. I don't process my present suffering through the hope that the suffering is going to stop. Even if it does not stop, Paul says, I continue on. Why? Because of future glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory. 
Paul says, not only do I process my suffering through future glory, but he also says that my suffering is preparing me for future glory. And so what happens if there is no future glory? Paul says, we're the most pitiful people on the face of the earth, is what happens. Because we've suffered and we've bled and we've wept and we've cried for nothing on the other side. You see, the resurrection is not just a nice cherry on top of the cake for the Christian faith. If you take away the resurrection, you're taking away the cake. If the resurrection goes, victory over sin goes. If the resurrection goes, victory over death goes. If the resurrection goes, the proclamation that our faith is based upon goes. The resurrection holds the hope that a brand new world has been initiated, not just by Jesus' death, on the cross, but in his coming back from the grave. And the full manifestation of that brand new world is on its way based on that fact that he came back from the grave. Without the resurrection, there is no resolution to any of that. All the death that you experience, all the suffering that you experience, all the tragedies that you have experienced, all the evil that we endure, all the rage that is that is. Uh, persistent in our, in our world, all the fear, all the divisiveness, all the hatred, all of that is still there and prevalent if the resurrection is not real. But it is. And that's what he says in verse 21. He says, for as a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in also, also in Christ shall all be made alive. What has happened and will happen because there has been a resurrection from the dead? Number one, the curse has been reversed. The curse has been reversed. Adam brought death because of his sin in the garden. The Bible tells us that sin came into the world through one man, and through that one man, death also and then death spread to every single person on the face of the earth through the sin and death of that one man. But in Christ, if many die through one man's trespasses, Romans chapter 5 says, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Adam brought death. Christ brought life. Adam brought through one sin many trespasses, but, but through many sins being born by Jesus Christ, life has come to us. And so, because what, what has happened and is happening because the resurrection is real? The curse is being reversed. The curse in us, the curse in creation is being turned. Life is coming. Newness is coming. Resurrection is coming because the one before us rose from the grave. 
But what is, also, what, what, what is also coming as a result of this resurrection? Rain is coming. Rain, the, res, the restoration and rain is coming because of the resurrection. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, when, Christ, when restoration and reign comes as a result of resurrection, the Bible says Christ will be the first fruits. What does that mean? It means that on the third day after Jesus' death, that he was the first to come back in his resurrected, glorified body, never again to cross the thresholds of death. He was the first to return, fully restored. You say, what about Lazarus? Lazarus died again at some point. But Jesus never saw death. He came back in a glorified state, never to see death again. And so he is the first fruits of the new, resurrected, glorified saints that follow behind. So what does that mean? That means that all of us, when we see Jesus, the Bible says, we shall become like him, for we shall see him as he truly is, meaning that we too will put on incorruptible. We too will put on glorified bodies. We too will put on bodies that will no longer know Death. We will no longer cross the threshold of death again. But notice, notice what happens there. He says, in, he says in verse 23 that each in his own order, then he says, Christ the first fruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. I, I, I love that because, because basically what Paul is saying, based on what Paul already knows about the Corinthians, right? We already know from an early examination of the Corinthians that they love positions and they love power. And they, you know, they said in the beginning, remember when we read, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. But here, here in this text, when people would want to say, okay, so Jesus goes first. All right, got it. All right, got it. Who, who goes next? Who goes next? Who goes next, right? Am I going next? You know, is there a group? Is there a VIP group, right? You know, there's, there's a bouncer that's waiting for us and say, okay, you next, you next. No, Paul says, first fruits, Christ. Who follows? Everyone. Everyone. Paul's reminding us of our identity as a body. Everybody, equally valued, and all will be in an instant awakened from sleep and given resurrected, glorified bodies, all of us, awakened. Those who were the least here on earth, those who were the greatest here on earth, those who had little money, those who had lots of money, does not matter. We will all be awakened and transformed instantaneously. When we see Christ, we all shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. There is no VIP section in the glorifying of God's people. Verse 25, it says, the, 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 
going back to verse 25, excuse me, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so when because of the resurrection, when the restoration comes, Christ will reign in a way that Adam and the rest of humanity could not do. The Bible says that the failure of human, not the Bible, but one theologian says the failure of humankind to be creator's wise, image-bearing steward over creation when he says the failure of humankind, he's talking about Adam. He continues on. He says, has not led the creator to rewrite the vocation, but rather to send the Messiah as the truly human being. The purpose is that in his renewed, resurrected human life, he can be and do for humankind and all creation what neither humankind nor creation could do for themselves. Christ comes and he reigns in the way that we were called to reign but failed to do so. He comes and he reigns perfectly. And when he comes and reigns, all of his enemies will be defeated and scattered. The Bible calls it uh, being subjected under his feet. Picture the imagery of a king putting his foot on the neck of conquered foes. And that's, and that's basically what Christ is doing through his resurrection. He's putting his foot on the neck of every evil, corrupt system, every evil and corrupt foe and ruler of darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. He is putting his foot on the neck and declaring himself king of all. That's what the resurrection means. So all of this is happening because the resurrection. Now, last thing. What is happening in me because there has been a resurrection? What is happening in me because there has been a resurrection? Remember what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when we read. He said, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. But may, might I add that we do not live either as those who have no hope. Meaning, meaning this. Because of the resurrection, I don't have to live in the same fears that are pervasive in my culture and in my world. When people are chicken, chicken littling out and spinning out of control and talking about, oh, this, this is going to happen to this country or this is going to happen to the country or this is going to happen to the neighborhood or this is going to happen to the family or this is going to happen to the city or this and that and the other, I don't have to, I don't have to abide in that same fear. You only live in that fear when you feel like this is the only life you have. But you have another life, saints. Because Jesus has resurrected, you don't have to abide in the same fears as the rest of the culture who does not know that resurrected Savior. When you abide in the fear of the, say, of the culture that does not know that resurrected Savior, you present yourself as one who does not know him. Does that make sense? People start spazzing out. You're spazzing out too. Like you don't have resurrection to look forward to. But you do. And so how should you respond? Your, your posture and your attitude should be aligned with the truth that resurrection is awaiting me. Doesn't matter what happens here. Resurrection is awaiting me. But. The resurrection calms my fears 
but it does not quench my fire. It calms my fears, but it does not quench my fire. In fact, the resurrection ignites it. Look at what Paul says in the very last words here. Verse 29 through 34, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? We could go into a long dialogue about that. We're not going to go into a long dialogue about that. Let's just say that the first, the, the best assumption, or not the best assumption, but the most popular assumption that people have of that particular scripture is that people are being baptized on behalf of those that have died before them in hopes that they can get saved. Does that make sense? People that have went ahead, they're trying to see, hey, I want to get baptized for my dad, for my mom, because they didn't know Jesus. Maybe I can get baptized for them in order for them to get saved. That's the most popular interpretation of what's being said here, but that's the only time you're going to see this in Scripture, so I do not recommend anybody trying to go get baptized on behalf of someone that has passed before them, all right? But that's as far, we're going to go, far as we're going to go with that, that part of the text. This is what I want to read. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul says, listen, why do you think I pour myself out like I do? I pour myself out because Christ has risen from the grave. I pour myself out and I live my life dedicated to making his name known and telling others about him because Christ has risen from the grave. I live in danger at this very moment because Christ has risen from the grave. I fought beast at Ephesus. I have, been, I have been persecuted. I have been imprisoned. I have been stoned and tossed on the outside of a city. Why? Because Christ has risen from the grave. If he had not risen from the grave, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, let's celebrate, let's party. Let's just live it up and die. There's no reason to discipline myself. There's no reason to go as hard as I'm going. But I go as hard as I do because Christ has risen from the grave, and I want to make him known to the world. What does he say in that last verse? Wake up from your drunken stupor. You are in a haze. You're just kind of moving from one day to the next with no purpose, living as if he has not risen from the grave. You're living like everybody else. The bad morals or bad company has corrupted you. You are surrounded by the culture who lives as if he has not resurrected, and so their life has corrupted your life. Paul says, wake up. You are the son and daughter of a resurrected king. Move through your life. Ask for grace to move through life as if that is true, as if the resurrection is real. Live as if the resurrection is real. Let's pray. Lord, we love you.